I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. And welcome back to all our listeners after our short summer break. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Down the line from Stockholm, we're joined by Richard Milne, our Nordic correspondent. We also have Olaf Storbeck, our Frankfurt financial correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing the latest developments at TSB as Chief Executive Paul Pester goes, a look at Danske Bank as it reels from a $30 billion money laundering scandal, and a talk with Olaf about the changing German attitudes to banks. First, though, TSB and Martin, you're pretty fresh off calls with the senior leadership at TSB. They've parted company with Chief Executive Paul Pester after this fairly long-running IT scandal. It's all still a bit of a mess there, and they've lost a lot of their executives, most recently Paul Pester today. Tell us what's gone on and why particularly now is the right time for him to have gone. Yeah, this has been, I think, the biggest IT disaster in British banking history. If you remember, back in April, TSB had to move its entire computer systems off of those of its former parent, Lloyds Banking Group, and onto an entirely new system designed by its new owners, Sabadell of Spain. And it's fair to say that was a complete disaster. It left millions of their customers without access to online banking. It left many of their staff in branches unable to access data on the customers that were coming in. It opened up many of their customers to fraud. Fraudsters saw this as a huge opportunity to start calling up customers and getting them to give them their passwords and stealing money off of them. So it was a huge mess. And Paul Pester has been trying to fix this, the chief executive. He's been chief executive of TSB since before it was spun out of Lloyd's for seven years now. He oversaw the IPO, it floated, and then the sale to Sabadell. He's a pretty popular guy, actually, in the industry, quite well thought of, but this has finished him. And union members, MPs have been calling for his head for quite some time. He's always said he would you know, consider his future once he'd fixed it, but he just wanted to focus on fixing this. He's being replaced by the non-executive chairman of TSB, Richard Meddings, who is stepping up to become executive chairman on an interim basis while they look for a permanent replacement to Mr Pester. Mr Pester, yeah, it was an interesting figure, wasn't he? He always sticks in my mind as someone who taught our former retail banking correspondent, Emma Dunkley, how to surf. She did a pursuits piece with him for the weekend FT magazine, a memorable read. But yeah, uh, help him with the IT problems. It didn't. Maybe he did too, a bit too much surfing and a bit too little managing it's of the bank. Something I've heard people say today, some union <laughs> officials are saying exactly that to me. I mean, I think that the problem is that this was a decision that was taken by the executive team to go ahead with this switchover of the IT systems when there were warnings that they weren't quite ready for it. And clearly that was a mistake. So ultimately, Paul Pester has to bear responsibility for this. 
interestingly, Richard Mennings was saying this was not Paul Pester being fired, nor was it, strictly speaking, just him resigning. It was a mutual decision by the board and Paul Pester that it was the right time for him to go because the IT problems have stabilised somewhat. It's unfortunate timing for them because just over this weekend, they've had yet more IT problems, a fresh set of outages that have led to many more complaints on social media by customers, and they've had to apologise on Twitter. And so some people are saying, oh, it looks as though that this is a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that they still haven't fixed their problems. I don't think that's quite true. Talking to Richard Meddings and others at the bank, the feeling is that they're pretty much getting on top of their IT problems and it's stabilised now. So they're in a position where they were able to say, right, Paul, you know, you've kind of stabilised much of this. Thank you very much. But there's clearly no way you're going to be able to continue as CEO. And we should say for our international listeners that TSB, while owned by Spain's Sabadell, is not an international operation in any way. It's a retail lender focused mainly on mortgages and retail customers, a bit of SME lending that they're looking to get into, but they're pretty small in that respect. Got about 5 million customers, about 550 branches, about £30 million of deposits. They rank about sixth or seventh in the UK, I think, after Nationwide and Santander's UK business. Put this into the broader context of international banking. As you said, this is probably the worst IT disaster in British banking history. It's not unique, though, for banks to have IT problems. Is this just an issue that's going to get worse as systems get more complicated, as cyber risk intensifies and so on? And as banking becomes increasingly digitised, you know, banks are all talking about how more and more of their product sales, more and more of their interactions with their customers are done digitally rather than face to face or even over the phone. So, so much is being done over smartphones nowadays by banks. They're becoming more and more like technology companies. And so they're increasingly dependent on their computer systems not going down because that's essentially removing the services from the customers that they promised. And they're going to end up very quickly losing those customers. Although TSB's customers have proved remarkably resilient. But I would say that right up at the top of the risk factors for every board has to be this kind of outage. And particularly the biggest worry is some kind of cyber attack that takes down a bank's systems. And regulators are all over this now. And that's why this is such a serious problem. Well, let's move on now to talk about another scandal that's been brewing for some time at Danske Bank, where a $30 billion money laundering scandal is evolving. We can talk now to Richard Milne, our Nordics correspondent. Richard, thanks ever so much for joining us. The Danske Bank scandal puts all the other scandals that we're often telling our listeners about into the shade, really, because people think about money laundering and they think about the scandal at HSBC, the scandal at BNP, both of which have paid large fines, in part due to scandals relating to money laundering. But Danska, yeah, absolutely blows them out of the water. This is a $30 billion affair now. Tell us more. Well, absolutely, Patrick. I think we're potentially talking about one of the biggest money laundering scandals ever uncovered. Just to put it in some context, the $30 billion figure that comes out is both in a way bigger and smaller than it sounds. It's bigger than that because we're talking about just one year. This is the sum of non-resident money that flowed through Danska's Estonian branch just in 2013. And this scandal covers 2007 up to 2015. Now, 2013 is the peak year. That's what the report that we've seen says. But we have to concede that we don't know the figures for the other years at the moment. So 
the flow going through is bigger than that. At the same time, we must point out this is the total amount of non-resident money going into Danske's Estonian branch. It isn't the amount of suspicious transactions and it isn't below that the amount of potentially criminal transactions. So that we'll have to wait for. Just to be clear, this is primarily Russian or ex-Soviet money. Yes, that's right. The Baltic banking system has what's called non-resident banking, which is predominantly ex-Soviet states and predominantly in that Russian money. The legal justification being it could be dissidents moving money in, but it's very clear from other banks in Latvia and elsewhere that there were some criminal activities behind as well. We have to make clear that we don't know whether that's the case yet in Danske Bank, but regulators' reports have found that there was the potential for money laundering on a big scale. What do we think this money was actually for? I mean, is it avoiding sanctions or is it drug money or what are the suspicions? I think there's relatively little known about that overall. Danska is going to issue two reports later this month. We're hopefully going to find out a lot more about this. There have been reports in the Danish press, which we've confirmed to do with it being money from close to Putin's regime. There's also been reports about Azerbaijan and Moldova, but we just don't know at the moment exactly what it all was. Let me bring Caroline Binham in here. Caroline, I mentioned in the introduction that the scale of this scandal seems to put into the shade the likes of scandals at HSBC, at BMP, at other big banks where there have been money laundering scandals. What would you judge it against and why is it mushroomed? Well, two things there. I think, yes, it can easily stand in a crowded field, in fact, among the leaders of potential money laundering cases that we all cite. Why is it mushroom now? Well, I think there's obvious geopolitical reasons why countries are taking a harder stance against money laundering. And the UK government, quite explicitly so, since the Salisbury attacks, has said it will crack down on Russian money laundering and the City of London being used as a laundromat. And I think that feeling is being echoed throughout the European Union. We know that there are moves afoot to try and bolster supervisors with greater powers. There is still a debate to be had as to have the best way to do that. And obviously money laundering almost by definition is cross-border. And so small states, Baltic states, Denmark in fact, it's very hard for them to do anything meaningful about it on their own. So some kind of international or at least regional coordination is really necessary. Back to you, Richard. In the case of Danska, one of the big surprises is that a lot of this money, or nearly all of it, went through an Estonian branch without anyone apparently noticing it. There's a small branch with vast sums of money flowing through it for, as you said before, many years. Surely somebody needs to be held accountable for this. Well, yes, you might think that's the case. I mean, I think we're going to find out there are questions for all of Danska's management and the board about what they knew and when. I think there are particular questions for the chief executive, Thomas Borgen. He's been chief executive for the past five years, so since 2013. But before that, notably, he was the head of international banking, which includes Estonia. He was in charge there from 2009 until uh, 2012. So these findings really put pressure on him and raised questions about what he knew and when. Finally, for both of you, I suppose, to what extent is this the tip of the iceberg in terms of Baltic banking and the use of 
banks in that region as, as Caroline said, kind of laundromats for Russian money. You first, Richard. I think it is very much of the tip of the iceberg. The start of this year, I spent a lot of time reporting out of Latvia. They had a huge money laundering scandal there. They're desperately trying to reshape their banking industry because it was totally focused on this non-resident money. And they essentially decided that whole sector was very much scandal prone and potentially illegitimate or difficult to control. And I think this raises big questions for banking regulators for the ECB about, you know, how you control banks as well. Final word from you, Caroline. We are expecting that the European Banking Authority will look to investigate what's happened in Latvia, as Richard alluded to, in the same way that it has with other recent scandals such as Malta and its Pilatus Bank. So it is something that belatedly European authorities are waking up to. But, you know, this is not an issue that is suffered by the Baltic states alone. Any small country that is relatively new to the rule of law will suffer. And I think equally much could be said about other jurisdictions such as the United Kingdom and the United States equally. Indeed. Well, Richard, I feel sure that you'll keep us posted on the brewing scandal as it evolves over the coming months. Thanks very much for joining us. So let's go over to Frankfurt now, where Olaf Storbeck, our Frankfurt financial correspondent, is on the line. Olaf, you wrote a very interesting piece the other day highlighting the kind of change of sentiment in Germany, how Berlin, which has traditionally been, yes, a pro-business, pro-industry political establishment, um, moving more to be supportive of the banking sector and the financial sector more broadly. It's a dramatic shift. It's an important one. And I suppose, in a sense, it's a logical one, given that Brexit will give opportunities for Frankfurt to build up its financial centre. The Chancellor, Angela Merkel, is due on Tuesday evening to give a speech on this topic. It's a bit of a landmark, isn't it? Yes. Merkel's visit to Frankfurt on Tuesday to the Frankfurt Stock Exchange really highlights how the thinking in Berlin about banks and the financial sector has changed over about the last half year. Previously, especially with Wolfgang Schäuble as the finance minister, who now is the president of the Bundestag, the government and the finance ministry didn't really care a lot about big banks. The relationship turned really sour after the financial crisis. And the finance ministry was more fond of small regional banks, the Sparkassen and the cooperative banks in Germany, who have large chunks of the market but don't play a global role. This has all changed partly, as I said, as a result of the competitive attraction of bringing more banking business to Frankfurt post-Brexit. But I guess also maybe a reflection of a concern about some of the big banks looking weak and needing support. Uh, I'm thinking particularly, obviously, of Deutsche Bank, but Comets Bank is also hardly thriving these days. Yes, the weakness of Deutsche Bank and of Comets Bank, who both have lost significantly in market capitalization this year, both are among the worst performers of the German stock market, has really raised concern in Berlin and Officials we talk to in Berlin in senior positions point out that the combined market cap of Deutsche and Comets these days at about 30 billion euros is at par of Société Générale, which is one of the smaller listed French banks. And this weakness is seen by the finance minister as a real problem because Olaf Scholz thinks 
Germany needs big banks which are globally competitive and globally successful. And last week in Frankfurt, Olaf Scholz said strong banks are a question of national sovereignty. And he called for a revival of active industrial policies, which is aimed at supporting banks. So at least the tone has markedly changed in Berlin. The actual action is not as visible so far. The government, the coalition, committed to make Frankfurt and Germany more attractive as a financial hub, and they promised to loosen Germany's tight hiring and firing laws for bankers to make it easier to fire well-paid bankers, which many described as a key competitive obstacle of Frankfurt compared to other locations trying to woo banks after Brexit. So far, this hasn't put into law, but that clearly is a different tone. There's been an interesting appointment into government as well, hasn't there? The deputy finance minister has been drawn from Goldman Sachs, and I think you spoke to him recently. Yes, the deputy finance minister, Jörg Cookies, used to be the co-chairman of Goldman Sachs in Germany. Interestingly enough, he's also a long-time member of the Social Democratic Party, and was quite active in his younger days in the youth organization of the party, which traditionally is more left-leaning than the kind of more mature party. So he has a political pedigree there. He hasn't been very active in politics during his career at Goldman Sachs, but he is one who has obviously a very deep understanding of the financial market and the importance of banks for the wider economy. And he surely is one of the drivers in this new pivot towards banks. He told us that he wants Germany to be regarded as a country which is welcoming banks and which welcomes the creation of jobs in Frankfurt by foreign banks. And he also stressed that there are a lot of kind of indirect positive network effects because professional services like law firms, public relations advisors and many others, accountants, are drawn in by international banks who create jobs. And this has kind of wider beneficial implications for the larger economy. He also stressed that while Berlin is talking a lot to international banks, they are not willing to loosen or to become softer in terms of regulation. He said what we won't have is a race to the bottom in terms of banking regulation. I suppose the biggest question of all is what, if anything, this shift of stance means for the future of Deutsche Bank? Yes, policymakers are very, very silent on this topic. So it's hard to judge what they really want. If we take what the finance minister is saying in public, it is that he wants to have a strong German bank. And they also point out that in the last financial crisis, foreign banks tended to retreat to their home market which if you don't have a German bank would be bad for German corporates. So this suggests that Berlin would be highly skeptical of a kind of foreign takeover of Deutsche Bank. And I also think it suggests the government would be highly skeptical of a foreign takeover of Commerzbank, Germany's second largest lender, where the government has a 15% stake, because many people say that a merger of Deutsche and Commerz is just a question of timing. It's a question of when, not if. So selling out commerce, which is very strong in financing small and medium-sized companies in Germany, to a foreign bank would be seen as a weakening of Deutsche and taking off the table the most likely merger partner of them. My gut feeling basically is that the new talk about industrial active industrial policy and 
the need for national champions in banking suggests that Berlin is probably backing a Deutsche Commerzbank merger and really very skeptical or against any other foreign takeover of Commerzbank. Well, do keep us posted on that. And thanks for the broader view, Olaf. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio and Richard and Olaf in Sweden and Germany. And also thank you for listening. If you're not already a subscriber to the FT, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>